Father, we, uh, as we look at the story uh, today of Peter walking on the water, it's funny, we can look at it two different ways. He was walking or uh, he was sinking, and he kind of did both. And uh, but we, we want to understand that better. We want to understand Jesus speaking to Peter and, and saying, why did you doubt? And, and understanding what it means, why, why, do, why do we doubt? Why do we deal with this? How can we, how can we walk on water instead of doubting? So help us understand this better, and, and please meet with those in a special way that bring their own doubts into this story today. Help us, in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, New Living Translation. Just listen. You could turn if you'd like, but just listen. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everybody else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace. They clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and they speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens and their words strut throughout the earth. And so people are dismayed and they're confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. What a difficult task it is. We'll pick it up there again a little later this morning. Doubt. Doubt is is one of those things that we probably don't like to talk about. It's one of those things that uh, I think all of us deal with, kind of like pride. Although pride, it seems a little bit easier to say, "I, I got pride. I'm so good at so many things. I'm so prideful, you know. It's it's a back it's it's like a compliment in the end of it, but doubt doesn't make you come off sounding very good, very spiritual, because especially when you're in church, you're supposed to be faithful and, and believe all that the Bible says and and know the Lord is there and and that He's with you and we sing about it, but to doubt it, we don't want to admit those kind of things. I want to take a very honest look at doubt by looking at the story of Peter walking on the water, and and maybe more importantly, Jesus walking on the water, and and try to understand doubt from the perspective of a doubter, that is, Peter. There was a time, centuries ago, it was very difficult to doubt God because of the bad things that happened. And yet today, it's very common for people to doubt God because of the bad things that happen. 
Check out, uh, would you go to Matthew 14? Matthew 14, 22. You're going to see some urgency in this passage of Jesus sending the disciples into the boat. Some things that happened previously in uh, chapter 14. John the Baptist is killed by Herod. So that has to be weighing on Jesus and the disciples. A friend, uh, a leader. Some of the disciples were followers of John before they became followers of Jesus. They naturally transitioned into being Jesus' followers. So this is a big deal. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000. And right after that, right after that whole feeding was done, this is what happens next. Verse 22. Immediately, there's that urgency, there's that intentionality. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of them to the other side, that'd be the other side of the lake, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, that's the 5,000, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Probably, Jesus is praying and working through his emotions on John dying. He might be working through this whole thing where when he fed the 5,000, there was kind of that messianic fervor like, let's make this guy king. He fed us all. This is a miracle. He might have been working through that. His time had not yet come. So he was praying by himself. Disciples are in the boat. Verse 24, the boat was already a considerable distance from the land. I think John says it was three miles or so, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, that's the middle of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately, there we go again, Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And you hear an echo of the great I am here. It's I, you don't have to be afraid, it's me. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. That's different than the video. Another little artistic liberty there. <laughs> but I thought it was so funny. That, you know, It was really funny, but, but Peter's the one that brings it up. I, I want to get out there. Uh, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. We don't know how many steps he got, but he was walking. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately, there's our word again, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. What in the world was Peter doing out there, you know, on the water? And I... I, you know, you could read the story, and by the way, this, this story is repeated in the, in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John. Neither of those guys put in Peter's water walking, okay? Only Jesus. Jesus kind of gets the focus when Mark and John write about it, but Matthew includes Peter's part as well. There's speculation on why that might be. Some people said Peter didn't like the story, you know, being recounted. Maybe it made him look too good because he was walking, Maybe it made him look bad because he was sinking. I don't know. But, you know, th- this is what happened. Peter did get on the water and he did walk. And so in the same story, I see triumph and I see 
failure. There's faith and then there's doubt. It's kind of both is going on. To Peter's credit, if, if I was to guess at his mindset, it's probably something like this. Jesus is my rabbi. He's my master. He's my Lord. And I want to be just like him. And if he walks on water, I want to go out there with him. I think that's really, if that's the mindset, I think it's a very noble thing to want to be there with Jesus, to do what he does. Every good disciple wants to be like the master that they follow. And I think Peter's no different. He just had the courage at that moment to say, I'm coming out there. Just tell me to come out. And Jesus says, come on out. He gets out, takes some steps. We don't know how many. And then he notices the wind. Clearly, this is a story about doubt because Jesus says, why did you doubt? And like I said, Matthew includes it where Mark and John do not. This is a story about doubt. What can we learn about doubt from this story? How can we wrestle with doubt in our own lives? Because I think if we're honest, all of us have felt doubt. How do we do it? How do we deal with it? How do we understand it? Well, number one, I'd say... When Peter saw the wind, he was seeing a physical phenomenon. I mean, he, he, he was seeing nature, and it was scaring him. I mean, he was actually walking on the water until he noticed, there's no way I should be doing this, and the wind is, is there. That's what the Scripture says. He saw the wind, and it scared him, and he started to sink. Doubt is a physical struggle. It's a physical struggle. When you look at the world and you see that not everything is as it should be, when you look at things around you, let's stick with the theme of wind. We could do that. Wind causes hurricanes. Hurricanes devastate homes, extinguish lives. Wind, physical phenomenon. When we look at the world, when you look at reality, I mean, that's what Peter did. All he's doing is looking at the reality around him. Like, hey, I'm walking on water. It's windy. This shouldn't be happening. And he starts to sink. When you look at reality, you have to understand that there's a human part of you that that sees reality and says, that shouldn't be. And you're going to feel that so strongly, it could bring up doubt in your life just by seeing the way the world is. Another way people have talked about this, and I'm sure you've heard this kind of thing as well, if if God is all-powerful, he could put a stop to evil. And if he's all good, then he hates evil. So why do we still have evil? You see? And that question is one that I think our culture, in a very acute way, is is experiencing that question and the doubt that it causes. Centuries ago, people didn't think like that. They kind of just just thought to themselves, I don't understand why there's evil in the world, but there must be a reason, and and, and God's got this. You know, he's still God. These days, we say, is there really a God? Because why wouldn't he stop this evil? If I would run out and grab a child 
in the street if a car was oncoming? Why wouldn't the Lord save that child? See, these are the the doubts that come up in our mind about God's goodness, his omnipotence, his, his, is he really there? Is he really involved in the world? If he is there, is he really involved? Physical things stir up these doubts. That's the way it is. I'm going to come back to that question later and try to resolve it a little bit, but for now, let's keep moving. Uh, Number two, Uh, doubt is dangerous. Doubt is dangerous. I feel like I've talked to Christians who talk about their doubts like they're they're not really a big deal, you know, like almost like it's uh, a sign of being culturally sensitive and and being a postmodern Christian. I got doubts, you know, I got some doubts. We all got some doubts, you know, and but scripture never treats doubt like it's not a big deal. Kind of like when we say, I got some pride, what am I going to do? You better do something, you know. You better be praying about that pride. You better be warring on that pride. And the same is true of doubt. It's not just some tame thing. At least James doesn't treat it that way. Can we pull James up? And i got to wonder if James, I mean, did he know the story about Peter walking on water when he wrote this? I don't know. But it's interesting, isn't it? James 1, but let him ask, this is talking about prayer, ask in faith, asking for wisdom is what it's talking about. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Doubt's not this little thing. It's a big deal. Even though I know that we all experience it at different times, it's a big deal if you leave it alone. It's dangerous. For Peter, doubt in that moment could have killed him. I mean, his faith was causing him, and supernaturally, by the power of God, he was walking on the water. And then when he started to doubt, he sunk. Doubt could have killed him. And I think we need to look at that and say, doubt could kill me too. Doubt is warring on my faith. I dare not treat it lightly. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. I just... I think if I'm Jesus and uh, I'm seeing one of my disciples walk on the water and then he sinks, you know, I grab him, I pull him up, we get into the boat, and I'm like, you took three steps, good job. I thought that's how we are, right? You know, like we, we want to look at the good stuff. Everybody gets a trophy, right? Everybody gets a trophy. You took three steps, good job, you did it. But Jesus puts his finger on the problem. What, you have little faith? Why did you doubt? Why'd you doubt? He didn't just cover it over. I mean, it's a real deal. I mean, I'm sure the other 11 are saying, well, I didn't go out there, you know, (laughs) right? But Peter did. And there was triumph and there was failure. There was both. Kind of like us. Uh, Number three. You were waiting for this, I'm sure, some of you, after I said it's a physical struggle. Doubt is a spiritual struggle, too. Because what's the first thing Peter says when he starts to sink? Save me. Who? Jesus. Save me. I mean, the same kind of words you would have said when you became a believer, Jesus save me, Peter's saying right now, save me. Doubt is never just physical. You know, it, 
probably a war today between science and uh, a biblical understanding of creation, and that, you know, often butts heads. We want to know where we came from. And we can't necessarily test it or prove it because none of us were there. But science and the Bible, deep down I know that those two things match perfectly because the Bible is the Word of God and God is the God who created everything. But secular scientists do a really good job casting doubt on this whole thing. It's not just a physical struggle of how did we all get here. It's also a spiritual struggle. Is there a God who made it? You, you can't separate one from the other. In fact, some of you might have been thinking when I was preaching on the, spiritual, the, the physical part of it, you thought, you can't really divide it that neatly, can you? You really can't. The physical stuff is also spiritual. They just intertwine. And so Peter, as he's sinking, says, Lord, save me. It's a spiritual issue. Number four, uh, Jesus can rescue us from doubt. He can rescue you from doubt. That's a great prayer to pray. Jesus, I'm having a hard time in my faith right now. Save me from my doubt. And watch him reach his hand down and help you up. That's what he does. He rescues people from their doubt. So try it. Ask him to help you. And fifthly, doubt is resolved in worship. Let's think about this a little bit. So the disciples climb onto the boat. I'm sorry, Peter climbs onto the boat. They don't even get out. Peter climbs onto the boat. Jesus climbs onto the boat. And it says in our passage, they, uh, they worshipped him. Let's read it again. Um, when they climbed into the boat, this is 32, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, um, John, when he records this story, he doesn't record them saying that. He only records that they were happy to bring him on board, and, and then they got to the place where they were going. That's all John gives us at the end. Mark is really interesting, because when Mark records this story, he records that they were astonished. That's Mark's word. They were astonished, and, and then it says, their hearts were hardened, because of the, during the feeding of the 5,000, because of the bread. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand the feeding of the 5,000, so they were shocked when they saw Jesus walking on the water. Now, some people might say, well, how do those two things match? Because Matthew has them worshiping. Mark has them, like, being stupid. They don't get it. You know, uh, Jesus was walking on the water. We're amazed at that. And, and I don't think the two things are that far apart. I think if you look at Matthew and you see the worship, you're the son of God, and you see Mark and it says they're astonished and, and their hearts were hard because of the feeding of the 5,000. The, the similarity is the disciples are learning who Jesus is. They don't fully get it. Remember later in Jesus' ministry, he says, you finally believe, you know, finally. They're learning who Jesus is. They don't got the whole picture yet. They definitely don't have the cross and resurrection yet. And, and, and how much of your thinking about Jesus is influenced by the cross and resurrection? I mean, at this point in their lives, we know a lot more than they knew at this point. So they're astonished. 
They worship Jesus. He's the Son of God. They don't fully understand the ramifications of that, but they're starting to get it. And the feeding of the 5,000 was supposed to show that Jesus is a prophet like Moses. He, he feeds, Moses fed the people manna, right? Jesus feeds the people bread. He, he's supposed to be a prophet like Moses. In fact, John brings that out. They didn't get it. They're learning. But they are astonished. They're astounded at who this person is. And I'm going, well, if you read Matthew up to this point, Jesus has done a lot of miraculous things already. They didn't get it yet. But they are starting to get it. I think that's where it comes together. Now, um, can I read the rest of Psalm 73 for you? Peter's doubts. I mean, Jesus, you're walking on the water. You're the Son of God. I was doing that, but I wasn't sure I should be doing it. And I was thinking... But the conclusion of the story is worship. Worship helps us work through our doubts. How does Asaph in Psalm 73 work through his doubts? Asaph is like, the rich are wicked and, and they seem to be blessed. And people like me who are following God aren't very blessed. And we got problems. Every day I got problems. And they don't seem to have problems. I'll read it again. If I had spoken this way to others, this is verse 15, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went to your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path. You send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. I'm going to jump down to 21. Then I realized that my heart was bitter. I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail. My spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. I love that. My health may fail. My spirit may grow weak. I may have doubts, but God is still my strength and my portion forever. And for Asaph, everything changed when he went to the place of worship. Everything changed in worship. Now, we have a benefit over Asaph. He had to go to a place we can worship anywhere. You could praise God anywhere. Praise Him in the shower. You don't have to sing. Just say it. Talk to Him. Thank Him for what He's doing. Uh, worship is a 24-7 activity. But in worship, we work through doubt. In worship, we declare things are true about God, and those things begin to overwhelm our doubt. Truly, you're the Son of God. We're starting to get it. We're starting to understand who you are. Keep worshiping. Don't give up on that when you begin to doubt. Let me, let me go back now to something I said earlier. Um, so one of the major doubts of today, and I, want, I wanted to deal with this a little bit, one of the major doubts today is this. If God is all good and he's all powerful, why is there so much evil in the world? That's Asaph's issue. Why do the wicked seem to be doing well and I don't? Suffering seems random. 
if we just picked out the worst people and made them suffer, then it would be fair, right? But it just it seems way too random for that. And it seems like even righteous people like Job suffer. <clears throat> A very popular answer that maybe some of you know uh, I, I heard Ravi Zacharias give this answer. It's a brilliant answer. He would say, love is one of the highest values in the world. Love. God is love. And to love somebody, you have to be free. If you're a robot, you don't truly love. Free will has to be a part of this. And so in giving people free will the door has been opened to great evil and great suffering. To have free will, you have suffering. Because people can choose love or they can choose the alternative to love, hate. It's a great answer. It's a great answer. He would go on to, I've heard him once, I heard him give a story about this. Um, he did a, he said it's a, it's a Middle Eastern story. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, there was a, there was a guy, he had like a little farm, he had, some, he had a horse. And one day bandits came in and stole his horse. Horse is gone. Neighbor comes over and says, so sorry about your horse, that's bad luck. And, and the farmer says, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know much about luck, we'll see. The next day the horse comes back with 20 other horses. And the neighbor comes over and says, I can't believe this, this was a good thing. It's good luck. And the farmer says, whether it's good or bad, I don't know. I don't know much about luck. One of those horses, as they were taming it, kicked his son in the leg and broke his son's leg. And the neighbor came over and said, oh, that's some bad luck. Whether it's good or bad, I don't know. I don't know. And then the next week, a local gang came by, thugs came by, and they were uh, forcing people to join them, young people, young men. And they went to get the farmer's son, but he had a broken leg. So they couldn't take him with him, and they left. And the neighbor came over, that's some good luck. See, this is how it works out. You don't know if what is bad will turn out to be for your good. You don't know the beginning from the end the way the Lord does. He's the Lord. We can't figure it out on our own. That's a good story. I have a few reservations about the free will argument. I don't think it's the best one. Robbie Zacharias could prove me wrong, I'm sure, because he's much smarter than me. So just keeping that in mind, if, if, you, if you don't know Robbie Zacharias, look into his books or teachings. He's a brilliant, brilliant Christian man, a, a good defender of the faith, just brilliant. Love him. Pastor Tim Keller also has, has written about his view and I think it's a more logical one, so try this on. One of the issues with the free will argument is this. When we get to heaven, will we still have free will? Well, I think so. We're still going to love, right? We're not automatically robots in heaven. But we're not going to sin, right? No, we're not going to sin. So is it possible to have a person who freely loves and yet never sins? It's possible. In fact... God is a being with free will and yet never sins. Jesus had a free will and yet never sinned. It's possible to have a being that loves well, never sins, and is completely free. I think that's an issue here with the argument of free will because one day we will live in a society where 
that's not an issue. The other thing that, you know, and this is one of those where, it, depending on how you view God's sovereignty, you know, you read Romans and, and, and you look at um, the part where it says God, you know, is sovereign over the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I mean, Pharaoh hated the Israelites. And, 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 and the scripture says he hardened his own heart too. But it also says God hardened his heart a few times. So did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God do it? And that's kind of like, well, it's both. Somehow Pharaoh's free will fit perfectly into God's will. Somehow God is sovereign even in our free will. And he still works out his plan in our free will. Was there any doubt in in God's mind that Jesus was going to be crucified by sinners? I mean, that was going to happen. There There was no getting around it. They were going to do that to Jesus, and yet it was part of his plan. And yet God held them accountable for the sin of crucifying the Son. They were free to crucify, and yet it fit into God's plan. Somehow God works out his sovereignty in our freedom in a way that I can't even explain to you, but I see it working. The Bible shows it working. So that's, that's my reservations on the, on the free will thing. This is... Tim Keller promotes this second view, though, and I find it to be one that is very convincing to me. Why is there evil when God is all-powerful and all-good? And his answer is, if God is all-powerful and all-good, he's also another thing. He's all-knowing. He has infinite wisdom. You can't, you can't imagine what he knows and how he sees things. And so he has good reasons for allowing things to go as they go. He does no evil. He's all good. But he has good reasons for not stopping every act of evil. He has, one, one day he will stop evil, but for now he allows it. And he has wise and good reasons that you and I can't fathom. Now you might say, well, if it was me, I wouldn't let it happen. If it was me, I'd rescue every child that's getting sold into slavery. Everyone would be rescued. That's me. His understanding is infinite. And he hates human trafficking. He hates it. And he wants us to work against it. But he has sovereign and good reasons for allowing that evil to take place. And I trust him. And I urge you to trust him. And if you think you know more than God, well, that's just arrogance. And we don't want to go there. Um, I've been asked, you know, have I ever dealt with doubt? You know, doubt on a really deep level. And I don't think that I have the way some people have felt it. Um, For me, and, and I read secular literature, like when you read the perspective of atheists or agnostics and you read their very clever arguments, you read it and go, wow, that's really smart, you know? <laughs> that's interesting. That's well-worded, well-reasoned. And you have to work through those things. And a doubt can creep in. But I cannot imagine, I cannot imagine walking away from Jesus. I think at the end of the day, no matter what I feel, no matter what I wonder, the alternative is, I'm going to walk away from the man who loves me and gave his life for me. Could I ever do that? No. I mean, technically, I guess I could. Free will, right? But no, I can't. I couldn't imagine how lonely it would be to go through this life without him. That's, that's what's kept me. 
is Jesus. If you're the one dealing with doubt today, what would I tell you pastorally? To, how, do, how do you work through that doubt? Um, I'll give you four things you could start doing to begin to work through that. Number one, I, if, if we were in my office and you were telling me you had doubt, I would say, number one, I'd say, stay grounded in the gospel. Stay grounded in the... I mean, if the, the gospel's in 1 Corinthians 15, right? It's first importance. If you start doubting that Jesus rose from the dead... That's a deal breaker, you know? This, this whole faith is about that. Don't give up the big rocks. Fight for the big things. I mean, you may have questions about how, how does Genesis fit with science. You can work through that stuff. To me, that's minor. Jesus' resurrection is major. Hold on to the major things. Don't let those things go. Make sure you, you can catalog or even categorize if you're that kind of person, you know, my doubts are these minor things down here. Don't doubt the big rocks. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. He sent his spirit to live it. Don't doubt the big things. I would say hold on to those for dear life. And don't get lost in the weeds of the stuff down here. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.14, we can put that up. Uh, that is not the verse. I picked the wrong one. Um, I think maybe I wanted 2 Timothy 1.14 where it talks about guard the good deposit. Guard the good deposit. The deposit's the gospel. And, and Paul said to Timothy, guard it. Guard it. That's the big rock. Guard the gospel. Don't doubt it. Fight for it. And God will fight with you. Secondly, I tell you, if, you, if you're experiencing doubts, I'd say, if there are sins that have damaged your faith, then you ought to repent of those sins. I'm not trying to put shame on anybody. I'm not saying doubt always comes from sin. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But 1 Timothy 6.10, hopefully I did get the right one there. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. People wandered away from faith in Jesus because they love money so much. Danger. It's dangerous. If there is a sin in your life that is damaging your faith, oh man, repent of that sin. There is sin that distorts our heart, and money is one of those things. We'd probably put some others in that category too, but money is one of them. Easy to love money more than the Savior. Thirdly, I tell you, you ought to seek answers from faithful Christians. Seek answers from faithful Christians. Do something like this. For those, for those minor doubts, w- when you're working through things, I'd make a list of what they are. Like, write them down. Well, what do you doubt exactly? Are, are you having a hard time with the science thing? Are you having a hard time with the problem of evil? Write it down. Write it down. And then see how other Christians have resolved that through their thinking and praying and meditating on the Word of God and looking at life, dealing with the reality around us. See how they've dealt with it. I've given you Hebrews 11 because Hebrews 11 is a list of a bunch of people that had hard circumstances in their life and they remain faithful. It's the, it's the hall of fame for faithful believers. That's Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Moses. By faith, Jacob. And this goes down all the way down the list. 
Some of them were tortured. Some of them were persecuted in horrible ways. But they stayed faithful. We look at the believers that have gone on before us and we say, how did they resolve these doubts in their life? What's their story like? Read about Lee Strobel, who who wrestled with his doubts and was ready to write a book against Christianity, and God turned that whole thing around. There are so many stories like that. Look and see what those people have to say, and then work through your stuff. Fourthly, never forget the meaning and the necessity of faith. Like, what is faith? And and why do we have to have faith? Hebrews 11.1. This is faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's not completely provable. I mean, yes, I have lots of stories about what God has done, but anybody that wants to doubt those things and try to find a way around it, they're going to do that. If you're going to find a way to doubt something, you're going to find a way. Because I can't make God appear right here and talk to you. I can't, I can't show you that. But I got stories of His faithfulness. And faith, is being assured of those things that you hope for, those things that you're going to receive from him, both in this life but ultimately in heaven. And none of us have seen heaven. That is what faith is. Why does, what's the importance of faith, though? Uh, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God without faith. So if you think there's going to be some writing in the sky and it's going to be like this concrete thing. It's not because that's not faith. That's not what faith is and faith is what pleases God. Probably the closest thing that I know of when God reveals himself, you know, is like Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Whenever I say doubting Peter, why doesn't he get a bad rap? I don't know. But it's always doubting Thomas. I want to see the scars. I want to be able to touch. I want to touch them. And then Jesus appears and touched them. But then he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And none of us have seen the risen Christ. And he loves that about it. I mean, do you, do you get that from this verse? Jesus loves the fact that you've never seen him, and yet you love him. And you see his power in your life with the eyes of faith. He loves that. And you're never going to be able to get around it. We have a well-reasoned faith. I have really good reasons to believe. And there are very intelligent Christians like Ravi Zacharias and others who know much more than me, and they have really good reasons to believe. But at the end of the day, I can't bring Jesus right here to show you the scars. You're going to have to take that on faith. I'd like to pray for you now, especially those of you that are wrestling with doubt. If you want to talk this week or talk later today or this morning before we leave, you know, let's set something up. Let's talk. One more word. For those of you with strong faith and you see those with weak faith, those that are doubting, what does the Bible tell you to do for them? Do you know there's actually a verse that says what the church is supposed to do for doubters? What we're supposed to do to them? Bring them to the front. No, no, no. <laughs> Look down on them. Criticize them. Uh, no. Jude, have mercy. I heard over here. Have mercy on those who doubt. How will you be merciful to those who are struggling with doubt? Because it is a struggle. 
It's a physical one. It's a spiritual one. It's a dangerous one. How will you be merciful and yet speak truth into their life? It has to be both. Let me pray. Worship team, come on up. Father, I want to lift up uh, those...